Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five, and it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And And today we have the amazing Rebecca Surley on the podcast. She is the author of In Five Years, which recently came out in paperback and it's all over the charts, like climbing it, swinging from it. It's like a little trapeze artist that never falls down. It's like the Tarzan of books. It just has vines and it's just looping onto the charts and it's just like swinging from side to side and doing its thing. That was a very yes and response to that opener. Thank I just, you very I much. I just went with it. This is the first time we've done the start of a show without like a clear game plan. You, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you, listeners, you may not know this based on what seems to be just seamless perfection, but normally <laughs> we have an idea of what we're talking about. Well, I know a few things that I want to say for sure. And one, that is the fact that our producer, Lindsay Collins, had a birthday. And she's one of those people who, and, and come at us, are you the person who everyone knows your birthday month and they know that you are to be worshipped for the entire duration of that month? Or are you the birthday person like Lindsay who's shaking her head into her fresh made oat milk latte that Kate just made for her, wishing that it would just pass silently? Because I... And my birthday monther. How do you? Which, think- by the way, everyone, June second. So, but it's how, coming up. You think all of June, or do you think half of May and half of June? How do you do? You split the difference there. I would totally let it bleed into May, considering I'm at the beginning of June. So I will gobble up the end of May and the entirety of June. Do you think that July seems a little selfish? I I wonder. I wish I could understand what the correlation is between people who do kind of have their head down on their birthday and they kind of want it to pass. I don't know if this is tied to a certain personality trait or if there's like the same trauma in all of our pasts. I just know that the idea of people like the trauma of getting cut out of your mother's stomach. (laughs) (laughs) No, maybe you had a maybe you had a uh, maybe something happened on a birthday when you were a kid where things didn't happen the way you wanted them to, and then you you started thinking to yourself oh, I didn't get that starter jacket that I really wanted. Therefore, every year going forward, I'm just not going to want because wanting is wanting leads to pain and therefore I will remove want from my life. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe we all have something like that in our past. Said like a true Scorpio. <laughs> is that right? Is that a Scorpion thing? Scorpio thing, I mean? You're not a Scorpion, Scorpion, darling. You're a Scorpio. <laughs> but don't you assume that every time somebody says Scorpio, they're thinking Scorpion in their head? Yeah, and Scorpios would sting you. But I'm a Gemini. I am pure duality. And I think it makes sense for me, at least, because I actually don't like all the attention, which for those of you who take my classes might find that confusing. But that's different. That's like I'm on, I'm working, like it happens. But in general life, if I'm not performing and I'm not working, like I'm very happy to be at the dinner table and be the listener. And I, obviously I like to converse, but I don't need the attention. I don't need the spotlight. I agree with that. Until my birthday rolls around. All oh, the pent up demurity, <laughs> which I don't think is a word, but it's demurred that I've conjugated poorly. It bursts out of you. And all of the attention you haven't gotten for 11 months, 
You want it. I do. I want it badly. I just, I, feel, I like presents and I like cake. <laughs> and you like to be made spe- to and feel I like, special. I like special events. I like experiences. And it's something that you are so amazing about that you know that about me. That, yes, I want cake. I love to, I love presents. But I just, I, I want the experience of the birthday and all the interesting things that come along with it. Before I forget, another very important birthday, Caroline Shane. I know, Shane. Shane. Wow. Like the movie Shane? That was my dad's favorite movie. I know it was. That's why I referenced it. Caroline Shay, as in Shay Butta, just had a birthday as well. And she's one of our number one humans and listeners. I love that we've turned free cookies and just like some birthday shout outs to some of our our friends and listeners and producers, which we only have one of, just one producer. Well, anyway, come at us. We want to know how you like to celebrate your birthday because I don't know. I don't think it says something about the person because I, who I am in my birthday month is not emblematic of who I am as a whole. Do you think that how I behave on my birthday day, which I really want to contain to one day, please, because it's just so anxiety ridden. Do you think that's representative of who I am? A little bit because you're complicated because it's not just, oh, I just want this to be one day because you act like you don't really want it, but you do want it. So if the day comes and it's not super special, you are disappointed. <laughs> I have learned that. And so you were just like, you're, you're, you're well, what, a little what scorpion it? wrapped in a little Scorpio package For being like, I'm not going to sting you. I'm not going to sting you. I could hope it. It's my nature. Bam. Oh, wow. For for those of you who didn't have the video on that, which is all of you, Catherine, was. it was almost like you were holding a crystal ball and you were molding it with your hands there as you were they, trying to handle the scorpion. No, they were pinchers. I had pinchers. Oh, they, they weren't talking to each other? Okay. This is this is probably not I what our listeners are going to be into. Okay. <laughs> uh, last thing before we get to Rebecca, who is absolutely going to appreciate this lead-in to her interview. Do you actually know what every sign stands for and embodies? Like, I, I, you say Gemini. Do people in general or do I personally? You personally, like, I could say anything to you. I could be like, one, I only know three of them, I think. Aries. <laughs> Aries is one. I say Aries and you're like, oh, yeah, those MFers are blah, 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 blah. Like, you have this information in your head. Don't you want to learn it just so you can sharpen our crossword skills? No, because you have that information. That's fair. And as a partnership, and anyone listening who's probably in a partnership, I don't need to know the information that you already have. You have the Greek mythology information, therefore it's downloaded into our household. And I don't need to have it because I can just turn to you and say, who's the dude who rides the ship and it gets crashed on the things? And then you know, bam. Jason. Um, yeah, I, 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 no, if you went through every sign right now, I would not be able to give you a thorough breakdown. That being said, the people who I've dated in my life that were important to me, I know those signs and I know what it means. I'm going to try to just really quickly name all of the names of the signs that I know. Scorpion. Oh God, help us. Scorpio. Gemini. Aries. And scene. All right. It's been nice listening to free cookies. (laughs) We should bring Rebecca on. We should probably. But before we do that, please, I know a lot of listeners uh, are yogis, yoga teachers, yoga practitioners. And if you are listening to this currently, there is major strain and crisis going on in India right now with COVID-19. And I understand that you may not have the funds to donate, but if you do, two, I mean, donate anywhere that you can, but two fantastic organizations that you can immediately go to is Her Future Coalition, or you can go to Yoga Gives Back. I have a personal fundraising page on Yoga Gives Back, and these will all be going directly towards crisis support right now. And of course, if you do not have the financial means to donate, you do have the means to amplify. So if you could share these organizations or whoever it is that you believe in, post about it, get the word out there. If you have benefited from this practice in any shape or form, this is called Seva, this is Community Surface, and it's time for us to give back. Rebecca Surley is an author and television writer who lives in New York and Los Angeles. She is the author of six novels and co-developed the hit TV adaptation of her YA series, Famous in Love. She received her MFA from the New School in NYC. She loves Nancy Myers films, bathrobes, and giving unsolicited relationship advice. All right. Um, so Rebecca and I met 
online, not dating, just online. Tinder is what it was. (laughs) Uh, We were talking for the Midtown Scholar, one of our favorite bookshops, um, because the paperback version of In Five Years had come out, which... Uh, what what month were we in? Was it was it February or March when your paper? I, I can't. Even, what year is it? Where are we? <laughs> I know it's so funny. It's it's only we're now in the middle end of March, uh, and it, the paperback came out at the beginning. It came out March second, okay. so it's been about three weeks. We're coming up on yeah, three weeks. It's been three weeks, and and in five years originally came out uh, about a year ago, give yep. or take. Yeah, and and so. Well, we obviously want to talk about that, and that's what we focused on for Midtown Scholar. Now we have you on free cookies, and we can talk yes. about whatever. We can expand our horizons. <laughs> but for listeners, oh. since just since yeah. I'm gonna like ball it back in, um, since in five years is the paperback that just came out for you, which is back on the New York Times bestselling list. Which congratulations, that's amazing. Um, what for people who haven't read it yet? Just, you know, a little quick summary to, little quick to elevator their pitch. appetite on why they little should quick, go pick this up. quick elevator pitch. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. And thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, okay. So in five years is the story of Danny Cohen. She is a young corporate lawyer living in New York City. She knows exactly what she wants for her life, has a very tight, um, airtight five-year plan. Um, we meet her on the day of her like giant job interview at the place she's wanted to work forever. She nails that interview. That night she gets engaged to her boyfriend. So everything is going according to plan. And then she comes home after having too much champagne, falls asleep on the couch and wakes up <clears throat> five years in the future in an apartment she's never been before with a man she's never met before. And she lives one hour, five years in the future from 1059 to 1159 on December 15th, 2025. She wakes back up in her normal life and thinks that must have all been some kind of crazy dream. And then four and a half years go by and she meets the man who was in that hour with her. And everything sort of starts to like both unravel and ravel together. Unravel, unravel. I like it. Sounds like that's an elevate. Like that is a synopsis you might have been asked to do once or twice before in your life. <laughs> You've got that down. Yeah, it's impressive. Um, all right. So let's, um, I, we are obviously going to, uh, t- touch base on the specific in five years again, but I want to broaden our horizons because yeah. I saw that you live both in LA and New York. Is that still true? I, I don't anymore. I, so I did for many years. The true thing is that I did for many years. I did for about five years. Well, I lived in New York for 12 years. Five of those years I was back and forth between LA and New York, but I was mostly in New York. Okay. Um, at least in my head, I was mostly in New York. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready to admit yet. Um, now I live in Los Angeles full time and I've been here. <gasps> oh, wow. That, is, that honestly took a sharp <laughs> turn from where I thought yes. it was going. Yes. Wow. Rebecca, I saw you so living full time. in. I saw you full time in New York. I don't know. This was five years in the future and I saw it. <laughs> I thought you were I mean, full time in New York, Rebecca. No, I was never going to leave New York. I didn't, That's what I, I mean, thought. Never. I, and I really, I mean, number one, well, I mean, it was the place I always wanted to live in the place I felt like my life was. And then also, I, frankly, it was the place that I thought my writing was. I was really mm-hmm. concerned that if I left New York, I wouldn't know how to write about another place or in another place. And that proved to um, to not be true, at least not entirely. So I live in, yes, I live in L.A. Wow. So oh, and, and there's, there seems like there's a little bit of shame in your voice when you talk uh, well, about I'm that. Sh- I'm, I'm shaming her. Kate is openly for- shaming you. <laughs> yeah. and I don't know if that is like summoning the shame or. But it, so y- you do strike me as a New Yorker, which is a big compliment, by the way. And Thank as you. someone who lived in Los Angeles for eight years, I understand the tone that I think is being mm-hmm. coded in your voice <laughs> right now. So so would you say that like underneath this, like you really like being in L.A.? Like, it, yeah, tell us the truth. Are you are you kind of digging LA? Are you like I love not oh. having screens on my door? It's the best. <laughs> I haven't been bitten by a mosquito in a year. <laughs> okay, a few things to say about that. The first, the first thing, <laughs> there actually are a ton of mosquitoes now in LA. There never used to be, but some <gasps> some yes, and everyone who lives in LA will attest to this. Somewhere around the last two to three years, we have gotten the mosquitoes. I don't know. It's some complicated like ecosystem thing. I global warming. I guess in short, probably. Um, but yes, we now have mosquitoes. So that's its whole thing. Um, to broaden out your larger question is I love living in LA and I actually went to USC 
uh, for college. So I was here oh, okay. and I hated Los Angeles. I always wanted to get out here. I also spent a lot of time here growing up. I thought it was just a town full of like phonies and fakes. And I was desperate to get to New York where people were real. And I went to New York and people were real. And I had what brought me back out to LA, what brought me back to spending a little bit more time out here was that I had a television show, Famous in Love, that mm-hmm. um, I created that shot out here and that we, you know, we filmed and we wrote. And so I had to come out the first time for maybe 10 months. And then I started spending larger and larger swaths of time in LA and it just got harder and harder for me to ignore how nice it was. Like I liked having a car and being able to go to a grocery store and put stuff in it. And I liked the (laughs) space I felt like I have a house now in a backyard and I'm, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I for so long rolled my eyes at people who left New York and felt like they were traitors. And, you know, of course I have my whole own thing about missing this year in New York and like, you know, what that means about me as like a moral person. Mm -hmm. But I, I really, really, really love it here. Like I can say that with a straight face. I'm so happy. Okay. Well, I mean, I can't shame Rebecca anymore for being happy in a new place, especially since I left New York too. And now I live in Charleston, South well, Carolina. Well, and you are, Rebecca is definitely speaking what your fantasy has been for a, a long time. Yeah. So speaking of, <laughs> speaking yeah, of, get you back no, on track. So what, ha, what, was, what was it like breaking into Hollywood and how has that relationship been? So I had a really kind of like hard right pivot into Hollywood. I, I had, I mean, my first book, When You Were Mine, which is a like a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, was optioned. And that was like, you know, sort of just like the standard thing. And that was a lot of fun. And um, and then I, I started working on my third YA novel, which is a book called Famous in Love. And it, it it's a series. There's two books, uh, Famous in Love and Truly Madly Famously. And I felt like this was, I felt like it was a TV show. It's about this girl who gets plucked from obscurity to star in like the next major feature film franchise based off a book. So she's like, you know, Kristen Stewart in Twilight and she falls in love with both of her co-stars and this whole thing. And I felt like I, it was a show, like I grew up on WBTV and it was a show that I really felt like I would have wanted to watch. And so I wrote the pilot on spec and we um we partnered with um with Marlene King who did Pretty Little Liars and we sold it to Warner Brothers and we then the pilot got picked up. I mean, when I tell the story, it sounds very condensed. This was all over a span of like three years. Um, the pilot got picked up and then we got picked up to series. And so I was then like, you know, in a writer's room every day and on set because we shot on the Warner Brothers lot where like we had our writer's room and then also we had our set. So everything was happening in the same space. And it was it was the most challenging experience of my professional life for a lot of reasons, um, but also really great. And I think what it allowed me more than anything, sort of in hindsight, because it's been a few years since that experience was over for me, is uh, just like more of a sense of freedom, I think, in the way I move through space in Hollywood. I used to feel like really I would hold so tightly to my work and feel like adaptations had to be true or I had to be super, you know, like I had to like with famous, I had to be like all in and super involved. And I, it was sort of a process of unlearning that for me and understanding that Hollywood just is by definition a collaborative medium. It's not books. And I know we're going to have a lot of follow-up questions on this topic, but I have to put a little pin in it because you mentioned... A little baby pin. A little tiny pin. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you grew up on WB shows, and we can't go on until you share what shows that you obsessed over, because I want to know if we share any. Oh, my goodness. I mean, for for me, when I was, like, in middle school, high school, it was Roswell, Mm -hmm. and then it was Dawson's Creek, and... And then it became Gilmore Girls. And did WB turn into CW? Are they synonymous? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're actually the same entity? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was was a Vampire Diaries girl. Hard. Oh, my God. Me too. Major. And I, fun fact, I wrote, so (gasps) do you remember there, New York Magazine used to do, Jessica Pressler used to do these recaps for um, Gossip Girl. And they were on New York Magazine and they were so fun. They were like, they were the vulture recaps and they like, sort of like in many ways, there was this like interesting symbiotic relationship between their recaps and the show. And like, they eventually like went on the, like went on the show and they were, they were awesome. They were like my favorite part of, of Gossip Girl. I mean, I, I loved Gossip Girl. And I, um, I then wrote recaps for Vulture for the Vampire 
Diaries for many years. They were not nearly as popular as the Gossip Girl ones. I don't think like I don't know like like a twentieth of that audience read them. But <laughs> I it was a it was really kind of a like an amazing introduction into that world, and I got to meet Julie Plack, who's just like you know an incredible like woman and mentor and creator and um yeah it gave me a lot of like really wonderful friendships so that's my that's my little connection to um to vampire did you ever get to hang out with ian smolder halder smolder Smolder halder i met him i met him once very briefly but i've never hung with him every like everyone on that show has always been extremely lovely i I don't know if the two of you will agree with this but (laughs) it's always a great way to start a a statement but (laughs) I think Blake Lively is the most, one of the most mesmerizing actors. I I don't know that, I don't know that I can say anything because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hip enough to understand acting at every level. Or most mesmerizing looking. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if it's just you want to watch she, her. the way she carries herself or her acting, but I, I just what Gossip Girl had that Vampire Diaries didn't have was Blake you Lively. Don't, you don't know that you didn't no, watch they Vampire didn't, Diaries. I know they, didn't well, have they definitely Lively. didn't have Blake Lively. Anyway, so uh, just the question here, and you probably didn't think, but well, they how had do you Paul feel? Wesley. Yes, they did, <laughs> and Nina Dobrev. Come on, yeah. I think the X factor of Blake Lively really drove Gossip Girl. This is just my amateur take that I just formulated in these 17 seconds. <laughs> well, I think I think you're I think you're right. I think you're I think you're right in part. I think what drove Gossip Girl uh, to circle back to like our previous conversation was also really New York. I think that yes. like there was something about that show that was kinetic about New York in the way that Sex and the City was and really iconic. I mean, I I moved to New York when that show was like in its infancy. And so like, I remember it was part of the conversation, like, where were they going out? What were they doing on weekends? Like we, you know, we wanted to go to like, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think about like, Oh my God, the gates, which was this like club that was in me packing, which was like close to where I live that they like had been to one time, or we want to go to the palace hotel or like they, they sort of made New York this, this, like they revealed New York to be the institution that, you know, we know it to be. And I think that was a huge draw for people. And I think still is New York is iconic in that way. Right. It always has been. Totally. And I think with gossip girl and, you know, sex in the city, these massive shows where New York city was actually a character in the show. It was very much alive. And you were saying earlier how part of your fear with leaving New York and moving to L.A. was that your stories exist in New York City. So how how do you see being an Angelino now changing your approach to storytelling? Well, my you know, my two my two books as of late, like my two adult novels, The Dinner List and In Five Years are both like such New York story. Yeah. They're just like steeped totally. in New York. Even the um, cover of five years with the New York City landscape. Yeah. It's such a beautiful cover. Yes, absolutely. And and the dinner list is like basically my whole experience of being 20 something in New York City. Like it pulls on so much of my experience of that decade for myself. So LA is um LA, I think is a, it's also to me, although this changes a little bit as I live here longer, but, but I think it is, it is a more passive place. It's like a place you live, not a place that you're like constantly in dialogue with in the Mm. same way that Mm -hmm. I think you are when you live in New York. Um, and so I think like, but I don't think that that necessarily will be, will be a bad thing. My new book that will come out hopefully next year and hopefully we'll be able to, I'll be able to talk more about it next month or two. Um, takes place in actually in, um, in, in a partially in a different country, but it's, but the, the girl is from, um, the young woman is from Los Angeles and it felt like it, it felt kind of easeful writing that it doesn't, again, like it doesn't have the same textile of place. I'm not writing about LA in the same way I write about New York because they're just, they're very different, but stories can exist, I guess, in a variety of places. And I mean, who knows? Maybe a book will take place in New York again. But but for now, it's been kind of freeing to see like, oh, I can write about another place. I can write a story in a different different location. Yeah, it kind of reminds me. I don't know if you you followed the conversation around Taylor Swift when when she entered a relationship in which she was happy and in love and all of her (laughs) previous albums had been breakup albums. And so this was this is more of a gender thing, right? Because all the questions to her were like, well, do you think you can even, could you, can you write music if you're not right. steeped in heartache? And right. I think there's, I think New York does, like you said, it offers something very like tactile 
in a story, whereas I think of LA as more of like a backdrop that you kind of set. And maybe that's just the Hollywood mm-hmm. version that we think of it. But do you think there was ever genuine concern that New York played a part in how you wrote? Or do you think you kind of always knew you would you would pivot? And was it actually a concern? Yeah, yes, for sure. Because I think that I think to me, again, it's not like it wasn't really about although it's become that writing about a different place, it was writing in that place. Like, I felt like I felt like the hot like I I say, you know, I've said before that I feel like the hot spot of my life moved like that's basically what happened. It moved from you know, like in a chain of volcanoes or whatever, like the hot, like I'm, I'm, um, my parents live in Hawaii and it's where I went to high school. And so, mm. which is a chain of volcanoes and like the hot spot has moved Island to Island. That's how the, the, the islands were created. Mm-hmm. Um, and now like the, you know, the, the big Island is the only kind of active volcano as of right now. But anyway, that's kind of how I feel about life is like they're, they're the hotspot of my hotspot of my life for so long was in New York. And that was, that was where the energy was. And then it slowly, I had to recognize that it had moved, it had moved to LA and that life moved here in a way that it didn't anymore when I was in New York, like the, the sort of synchronicities, the opportunities that I used to get so seamlessly in New York, I, that started, they started to happen here in California. And so I had to acknowledge that. And part of acknowledging that was, was recognizing that I didn't have to be so afraid. Like I didn't have to be so afraid of the fact that I wasn't going to be able to write in a different place because like that energy had shifted over. That's a really cool analogy with the, the volcanoes in Hawaii. Yeah. I've never thought of that before as like, in some ways you have to be honest with yourself about like where your life is actually happening versus where your past has happened or yeah. How they well, that, that yeah. connects to my, my question that I've been mulling over here. So you've written both young adult novels and adult novels, and mm-hmm. it, it sounds like you don't have plans of going back to young adult at this point in your life. And I've always wondered, as someone who has tried to write young adult and ultimately discovered that I don't think it's for me personally, I enjoy reading them, but I don't think I'm good at writing them. Was that part of your evolution as well? Like, is it something that as you age, you're less interested in telling those young adult stories? You want to tell more adult stories or maybe there's no correlation there. Maybe, um, maybe there's another volcano that you want to, like, where is this <laughs> other volcano? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I sold my first book when I was 24 and I wrote it when I was 22. So I, yeah. I was really close to the teen that experience. Yeah. What it, yeah. What it felt like, like I was also a late bloomer. So like I, at the point that I wrote my first novel, I was going through like my first really big heartbreak. And so it, all that, like the, the sort of like the emotions and the space of why I just felt really organic to me because it was the, it was the space that I was living in. And then as I got older, I wanted to talk about, you know, what it felt like to be 30 and to be dealing with like a whole other set of circumstances and questions about what I want for my life. And so, yeah, it just, I think my writing just sort of organically grew with me. I'll be curious to see what happens in the coming decades. If I start to write stories that are, um, I don't know, more aligned with, with like the life stage I am, my guess is I probably will because, you know, every writer has said this, Joan Didion has said it before, but like I, you know, you write to figure out how you feel about your own life. And I think that, yeah, I think in many ways I do. So my, my books, even though it's not like a, you know, it's not a one for one, I'm, um, they, they do in some way tend to reflect like the, the large questions that I'm grappling with at, at the moment that they're, they get written. So with that being said, do you think when it comes to young adult, and I mean, obviously this isn't a strict rule, but do you think it would be wiser for young adult authors to be closer to the young adult age? Because like you said, you know, you write about your life and what you're trying to figure out about your life. And if you were further along from the teenage or younger experience, I do think it's very difficult to put yourself back into those shoes. I mean, I think we all remember like heartache and we remember feeling like someone breaking up with us meant the world was going to end, but to to like totally encapsulate that feeling at least for me personally, it was very I find, difficult I don't to think get I back into. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, for me, it's been, you know, for me, it has felt freeing to, to, to like talk about the things that, and be like the age I am in the books that yeah. I write. But I have, you know, I have many friends in YA who still feel tremendously satisfied from that experience. So I don't know. I mean, I mm. think, I think everyone's writing journey is really different. I, you know, I also know people who are now in their forties and fifties who write YA who like have teenagers or, yeah, you right. know, 
and sort of like see the world reflected in that way. So I don't know. I mean, I know that being a teenager is infinitely different than it was when I was one (laughs) ago. And, and I don't pretend to understand sort of the intricacies and like the, the real, like, you know, serious challenges of like what they deal with. I mean, talk about like active, you know, school Mm -hmm. uh, shootings and like, I mean, it's a different landscape. They Mm -hmm. have been handed very different landscape. And so I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. And also like just on a practical level, I think about it and I'm like, I have no idea how, like, I'm like, do they have like computers in class now? Do they have like <laughs> laser pointers? Do they use whiteboards? Like, I'm like, I don't do even know what's going on there. Like, I wonder, do yeah, they just text like, each I, other? I or do they no pass idea. notes anymore? I hope they still pass notes. Right. <laughs> and in fact, I had a really interesting experience because I went back so my first novels, When You Were Mine and The Edge of Falling, were um, Simon & Schuster, after after In Five Years came out last year, we repackaged them and sort of re-released them at their about like 10-year anniversary. And I got to go back through both of those books and sort of update them a little bit, um, like modernize them, so to speak. And it was really fascinating just to see in 10 years how like, you know, there were iPods in that and like not a lot, not cell phones were not so ubiquitous. And so, I mean, I didn't, I, for anybody listening, who's going back to them, I don't pretend that those books are, um, representative of 2021. They're not They're you know, like that would involve from the ground up, like totally rewriting something. And, um, that's not what I did, nor do I have interest in doing it. This is a, this is a book that encapsulates a certain moment in time, but it was interesting to try to like bring in a little bit more, you know, into this moment and to see like, wow, like even in 10 years, how much things change. Yeah. We're kind of on warp speed right now when it comes to some of the, like the, well, I'm using the word tactile again, but some of the actual tangible things that were in the world 10 years ago that, or are now expedited or advanced upon. It just seems like every three years you get completely written over. Um, Okay. I had a question about TV writing because I have tried to TV write. That's what I call it. TV writing. <laughs> yeah. TV write. Yeah. Um, what, from, from a brain perspective, what's the difference between writing a pilot or a TV or a script for an episode versus a book? Like, what are you doing differently? Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm like mentally doing differently because I sort of feel like my creative brain is my creative brain, but the process of television writing is much more mathematical and it's much more staged. Meaning like when I, I don't just sit down, like when I have a book idea, I sit down and I free write. I just like write my way in. When I have a TV idea, there's like, you know, months of conversations before you even get to writing a story area document, which is basically just like six paragraphs as to like what this show's about. Um, and then you move from that to an outline and then to, you know, and then to an actual draft of a script. So it's, I don't know, it's much more mathematical. I also, you know, I will say just very honestly, television writing doesn't come as easily to me as book writing does. I I mean, I have less practice at it, but also it's just like, it's a, it's a harder skill for me, maybe because it is less free in a way. So I will do a lot of like rereading of scripts or, you know, or sort of just like watching of pilot episodes to see like, okay, like the 12 minute marker is where so-and-so happens. Like it helps, it helps me to be like more in the rhythm of television when I'm writing television, which is not a thing I find that I really need when I'm writing books. Although I do, I do tend to read more when I'm writing. So. And with the writer room, the, the, the concept of a writer room is fascinating. Writer's room, I think. Writer's room. And there's apparently a yeah. lot of uh, LaCroix in it. Oh. People really? like seltzer yeah. in they're writer's like the, rooms. They like their bubbles so in true. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So, for example, Famous in Love, you already wrote the books. And how, okay. Sorry. I'm going to collect mm-hmm. my thoughts now. Mm-hmm. The collaborative process versus the isolated process of writing a novel. You know, it, it can be very isolating when you're writing a story and it's just you and assuming you don't have someone reading over your shoulder while you're writing your book. What is it, A, the collaborative versus the isolated experience? And also, what is it like taking your story to a group of other writers and giving them permission to give you ideas about your own words? Um, it was really hard. 
I mean, I, like I've been honest about that and I, it was hard. There were, there were, there were a lot of like, um, there were a lot of kind of political elements to that show. And also I was really new, um, at it. And I didn't, I, there was a lot, I didn't understand about how television works, you know, and, and sort of like the hierarchy within that, that was really hard. And I, you know, I, I like, I take responsibility for being just naive and, and, and feeling like I could kind of reinvent the wheel. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of reasons that the wheel exists. Um, I, I had a really, really challenging time with it. And I think it's part of the reason that I said at the beginning that I feel a lot of gratitude for that experience, because I think Mm -hmm. it taught me a very, very painful back up against a wall way, how to let go. Um, which I think is an important lesson in life and work. And so I think that if you, I think if you're a writer approaching that space where people are going to be talking about your own work, I feel like, you know, um, I feel like it's a challenging experience. And also if you can just try to sort of like open your palm and not cling on so tightly, you will get more out of it. Um, I, you know, I had, a, I have a friend who is um, leading the writer's room of a show that's based off of one of her books right now. And we chatted briefly before the room got up and running and she was asking my advice. And I said like, as much as you can apprentice yourself to this experience because it's mm. going to be hard and it's going to be painful and it's going to be, but like, it's going to teach you things too. Like you're not the expert in this. And I think sometimes when we reach a certain level of success in a particular field, we feel like everything should sort of be easy or downhill or I should know it all. And I think that like the more we can kind of open up to the fact that challenging experiences teach us things and that there's actually like real worth and benefit in, in, in like letting ourselves be the student of that experience. I think like, frankly, the happier we'll be in, in the things that we go through. I've often been drawn to TV writing or being a part of a creation of a show. I think for one, for a number of reasons, but the one specific one, and I don't know if this is even what the world is like or your experience of it, because maybe this is more the showrunner, right? The person who's, I mean, you know what a showrunner is. I'm just telling us for for our listeners who are like in charge of everything, you know. I think there's something alluring to the fact that in, in when you write something, you have to create it from nothing. And there's this element to like being a part of a show where like it seems to me like people present you options and you get to react to what they've presented, right? And I and I think almost like interior design in a way where it's like, I don't want to just find the couch, but if somebody gave me five options on a couch, I would be, I'd be able to pick one. And I guess I'm saying this in that maybe this was not the job you had when you were on the show, but like the idea of like scouting a location and just using your inner kind of compass to know like, yes, that reflects the, the idea of the book or the space of the book or the energy of the book. Where, did you get to experience any of that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that the pilot was really the the place where that all came together, like getting to, cause I, you know, I'd never been on, on a set before. And so getting to be a part of all of that from the ground up and like really build this world was, um, was really compelling and interesting. I mean, everything from casting to, you know, like you're saying location scouts, to like figuring out how to, how a set works. Um, that was all, that was all really interesting. And I feel like that was a real, like those sort of, uh, 12 days of shooting that pilot was a real high for me. And also all of the, the months of prep that go into the shooting those 12 days. Like there's so much. And also I think like really good showrunners, which that was not my title on the show, but really good showrunners are people who, um, who are able to give their partners, like the people around them, the heads of departments, their writer's room, like real ownership over, um, something. And I think that, um, you know, the more you can empower people to feel like this is like, this is ours or part of a collective here, I think the better result you get. Mm-hmm. Um, I am <clears throat> going to turn it a little bit here. You, you take control. I'm gonna turn it you just grab the, that steering wheel and you drive this car. So Rebecca, I think it's one in one of your bios where you say you like to give unsolicited relationship advice. And I, I'm very intrigued by that. And I was just wondering if you have any maybe famous people that you would really love to give them some unsolicited relationship advice that you could share with our listeners, because I want, I want to hear you in action. I just want to hear you in action. 
Oh my god, that's fascinating. Some famous people. Like, you know, like, Harry and Megan. Yeah, like what would you tell Harry and Megan in relationship to the crown right now? Um, what would I tell them? I don't know. I feel like they're doing pretty great. I mean, listen, anyone who can escape England for Montecito, like props. I mean, <laughs> I like talk about, talk, you know, talk about like migrating West. I feel like that seems really, that seems like a nice, like, like I, I was actually in Montecito six months ago and it's pretty much heaven on earth. So I feel like if they found their way there they're probably doing pretty well. Um, also, I don't, I don't know, I don't know as much about family dynamics. I guess. <laughs> I really yeah, let's go back to something romantic. Is there yeah, anyone out there? Dynamics either. You'd um, have to have a good foundational understanding of the relationship before you offer this unsolicited advice, huh? That is, pro- that's probably <laughs> true. That you know, in theory, that would be wise. I guess. Um, I'm more. No, it's it's really funny. I think because I. I sort of, I don't know, when I was younger, I always imagined myself like getting married young and having children young. And that is not how my life turned out at all, thankfully, because I don't know. I mean, nobody can know, right? That's kind of the point of in five years, like how our life would turn out if we had a different set of circumstances or whatever. But I am really grateful for all the time it's given me to, to like grow this career and to, um, yeah, to just like have this life that I, that I, that I do. But I also just like, for whatever reason, I don't know, like think I'm in, I'm like an expert on relationships and love, even though I'm clearly, obviously, and evidently not. So I'm like constantly giving my friends who've been married for like seven years. I'm like, here's the deal. And they're like, really? Like, what do you know about being married for a decade? I'm like, it's fine, guys. I got this. Yeah. Well, I think it's, Um, yeah, you're clear eyed and they're muddled in the day to day (laughs) drama and you're clear eyed. Yeah. I see it. Um, yes, go ahead. Oh, so uh, because you mentioned that that this was not necessarily the life that maybe you grew up envisioning that you would be living at at this age. I was wondering when you look at the way your life has gone so far, how much of it do you think you've designed to be this way versus reacted? Mm. That's such a good question because I think that, I think that, um, how, how do I want to put this? I think that for so long, I felt like I was reacting. I felt like my life is turning out so differently than what I think I'm planning for. And I keep not getting the thing I really want, but this other stuff keeps happening. And then looking back on my life and certainly living presently now, I see like it wasn't reaction. I was, this is, I was building this, right? So when I kept thinking like, how come, like, how come I don't have that relationship or how come like I'm not partnered yet? And like, you know, but all this really amazing work stuff is happening. It's like, well, that, cause that's really actually where I was putting my energy, my mind and sort of this, this story, quote unquote, of what my life was, was like supposed to be might've been saying one thing, but the actual energy of my life and what I was putting my attention to and what I was focused on was what I was getting. So I really like that question. Cause I think, cause I think in a lot of ways it's, it's, I mean, it's both, but I think it isn't the thing I thought it was. I think I felt like I was just reacting and in, in reality, I was really, I was, I was building something. It, it was just different than what I thought it would look like. You know, we watched, um, Bridget Jones diary recently and mm. Kate had never seen it before. I would like to point <laughs> oh out. Oh my goodness. I know. I like weirdly liked the third one. Is that like a controversial take? I, I can't I can't answer that because I have not seen the third one. Okay, great. Okay, okay. okay. I will say the first one did not hold up from a misogyny perspective. Oh, like Hubert's behavior in it the is office place so bad. was unacceptable yeah, and wouldn't be laughed at anymore. But so so the reason I'm bringing it up is because clearly the premise of Bridget Jones is that she's going to be a spinster and everyone's always like, "Wow, you're single at this age." And I, I know now I feel like I'm propagating this like societal <laughs> issue, but do people still act like that? Is there still think, that feeling? Um, I don't, I don't know. I think that so, I think so much of it is self. I will also say, I mean, I, I feel like growing up and my parents are like incredibly supportive people who are like, still married very much in love and like have supported me in everything I've ever done. But there just wasn't for me like a tremendous amount of dialogue. I don't think when I was young about like 
my own career. Like it was, I don't know. There was this assumption of like, you get married. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My parents are like nice Jews from the East coast. Like that, you know, like I was just sort of, and again, like, I don't, I don't, I have no opinions about whether that's right or wrong necessarily, at least not for the purposes of this conversation. Like it was just kind of what it was. And so I think part, so I think part of that is a little bit inherited. And then I think part of it is just like, you know, we're talking about Bridget Jones, like the way the media sort of like narrates what we're, what we're like meant to do. And then, um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I have at friends weddings and stuff like felt that I, I also, I, I do think that the questions we are comfortable asking women are not the questions we would be comfortable asking men. So like, you know, I like, I get like, you know, when are you getting married? When's that whatever? And I, I just feel like nobody would be asking a man and like a, you know, who had a book on the New York times list, like that wouldn't be the first line of questioning necessarily. Now I sound like I'm some kind of braggart asshole, but like, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like, I don't, I just, I feel like we ask, we, we kind of make that the focus of women's lives sort of from like a cultural perspective. I mean, yeah. all of this is changing, but um, and I feel like changing pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's left over, but like th- those leftover things can still have real implications. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I, I want to ask some fun questions and these, these have all been fun. The- they have all been fun. I'm <laughs> having a great time. <laughs> I'm going to ask some super fluffy questions. Let me readdress that. So some fun fluff. Um, and these are inspired by three of your books. So yeah. I'm going to kind of put you into them. So Please. Famous in Love, if you mm. had to be in a love triangle and mm. it was with two famous people and it can be real famous people, it could be fictional famous people, who would your love triangle be with? Oh, that's such a great question. Probably um, Lively. <laughs> I know, right? Stop influencing. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's like it's like really crazy. Um, I mean, now all I'm thinking about is the Vampire Diaries, and I'm like, Stefan and Dana. Yeah, I just want to be Elena. Um, I mean, what a fantasy! I, I, who do I really love? You know, who I really love is Brian Greenberg. Like, I don't know if that's like, like, again, like the net, like he's like, he just like, he's such a great combo between like super sexy and also just like, seems like a nice Jew who like, likes to like, is in a band. I don't know. Kate's Googling We're Googling him because we don't know him. So that's. But like that movie Prime with Uma Thurman is like one of the hottest movies. Yeah. I agree with that. That movie is, I mean, Meryl Streep's in it also. It's like, in my opinion, highly underrated. I'm like obsessed with it. I think it's so great. Yeah, Um, he's cute. He's cute. He's really acceptable. Acceptable. <laughs> acceptable answer. Um, but you need one more for your triangle. I know. I need one more for my triangle. We're, just, we're only in a relationship right now. We got to spice know. it up. It's not spicy enough. <laughs> we're only in a relationship. So true. Um, who do I think is super hot? Oh my God. Did you, I just finished watching Briggerton. Oh yes. Yeah. The lead. Yeah. He's so sexy. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, sexy beyond yep um yeah I just I, I I was in Hawaii actually visiting my folks for a while and somebody told me to watch it but they were like don't watch it with your family okay. yeah. and in the first two episodes I was like what are you talking about it's just like a bunch of like I don't know Victorian or whatever era people like walking around with like sun umbrellas and then you get to episode five and you're like oh this is just like straight up graphic sex like for the rest of the season well, we, 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 we stopped it. At, I think we stopped at umbrellas. We were, I just was so bored. I have to be, I honest. was not, but Kate, you got to push through. Okay. I okay. mean, I, or don't whatever, but hey, you have my graphic like, sex scenes. I'm like, yeah, it's petticoats like, it everywhere. Like, it makes this like really hard, like tonal pivot. Huh. And, and like, then Ooh. just becomes this like sex show, but like, you know, but then it also has all of the like aesthetically pleasing things of like, just how, how like fun and frothy the world is. Our okay. producer is um, smiling and nodding her head right now. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird though. Cause I, I was like, I don't know what people are talking. Like it literally is just a bunch of people walking around with umbrellas. And then I don't know, it's episode four or five. You're like, wait, what? Interesting. Um, okay. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, we're back in. I'm sold. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's compelling TV. Anyway. Okay. So moving on to the dinner list, another one of your novels. And this might 
be obvious and something that you technically answered within the novel. But if you could, and we'll shave it down to one, just one. If you could sit down with any figure in history, alive or dead, or, you know, all those rules, who would it be? Blake Lively. <laughs> God, help us. <laughs> Nora Ephron. Oh, <gasps> good choice. That's awesome. I and, mean, and I mean why? here's what I'll say. Like, with the exception, if it, if it were anybody, I would sit down with my grandfather who died when I was two years old. Mm. And I've always, like, felt really connected to him. The dinner list is dedicated to him. But... If it were like a public figure, it would be Nora Ephron. I, I, um, the in five years opens with a, with a quote from her. I, I just like, I love her. I love her voice. I feel like so much of the work I do is because of the work she did. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't just mean as like a woman, as a feminist, I mean, literally like the story she told about New York and love and all of that. Um, it was like her movies were sort of the creative content that like I grew up on and made me fall in love with with like this form. So also she, um, by all accounts was an incredible cook. I think also she was like a very tough love person. I also would just love to hear her take on everything that has happened in the years since she passed. Like it's Mm. sometimes it's crazy. There are certain people who I think were so much a part of the like collective consciousness and like, we're so much a part of like the dialogue and it'd be, I don't, I think it would be really interesting to get her take on our modern moment. Like I miss, I find myself missing her voice sometimes. I would probably yeah. follow her lead on whether to be on social media or not. Like yeah. I could see her slaying the game on social or I could see her having some really smart reason why she does it the way she does it. And I bet that I would want to follow exactly what she said. Yeah, I totally Because I find agree. myself lost in like, I shouldn't be doing it, but I kind of need to. And is it, you know, the, yeah. the thing that we all, I think so many of us struggle with. And I actually, now that you've said it, I think, Nora Ephron would be like my, my messiah on that front. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, she's, yeah, she's, um, she's pretty amazing. So I like, I mean, I never met her or knew her, but I, I like miss her. She's like one of the people, she's like one of the kind of people that I miss. Yeah. And then finally, and you probably saw this one coming, Rebecca, where do you see yourself in five years? Back in New York. Oh, all right. Nope. I know. <laughs> You're so bad. Still living in LA. Blake Lively. Um, Developing a show for Blake Lively in New York City. <laughs> there's so, there, you know, people always say like there's, you know, there's always the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and it's never like good enough. And yeah. what I will say to that is like this year has really, really felt like good enough. Mm. I am so unbelievably grateful for the success of this book, what it has allowed for me in my like personal and professional life. It's, it's really been like so humbling and gratifying. And I can say with a straight face that I have like really enjoyed this success Mm -hmm. and like celebrated it and like really been present for it. And I think part of that honestly is COVID just being able to be and not be on a plane all the time and going Mm -hmm. a bunch of different events. Like I've just, I've been able to like just really be and Skype into people's zoom book clubs and like, you know, chat with people online. And, um, and so I, I just, I feel so, deeply satisfied in my career right now. And I hope for myself that that, that that continues, but I'm at this really interesting place where I'm not, it's not like I look to the future and say like, I want so much more. I'm so, so, so gratified with what I have right now. And that's a really nice place to be. Thank you for saying that. I love that being present for your own success. That's such a succinct, beautiful statement that most of us miss out on. (laughs) Now you mentioned deeply satisfying things. Mm -hmm. One sounds like Bridgerton Mm -hmm. is, um, but (laughs) also deeply satisfying are cookies. And so, I mean, at least from our, obviously our opinion is that cookies are deeply satisfying, thus the name of the podcast. But so Rebecca, what is your favorite cookie? Okay, I am allergic to wheat, so I'm gluten-free, which, by mm. the way, does not preclude, but, like, there are a lot of, like, really, really incredible. Yes, absolutely. You can make some almond flour cookies. cookies. You can do a lot with oh that. Oh, my God. I love, I love, like, a real, my favorite cookie is, like, a really, really, really great chocolate chip cookie. And there's this, there's this, like, there's this restaurant called La Provence in West Hollywood that has, like, the most incredible gluten-free chocolate chip cookies that are like amazing. Um, they have a great chopped salad also, I guess, but, um, but the gluten-free cookies are out of control. And I was actually just thinking about one yesterday afternoon, but like, you can't kind of, I didn't really have this occurrence to like, I, I didn't really have this thought till like three 30 and it's, it's sort of like a lunchtime sellout situation. Yeah. Um, 
So what's the name really of this restaurant there. or place? Oh, La Provence. La Provence. Oh, La yeah. Provence. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I have a cookie question for you because as, as an ex-New Yorker and you said that you have two, what, what did you call them? Proper Jewish parents to, or you had a, sure, cu- yeah. a, cu- a cute term for them that you mentioned earlier in the interview that I'm, my question for you, like a black and white cookie, right? Is it a mm-hmm. cookie or is it really a miniature cake? Oh yeah. Mm, I mean, <laughs> you know what I, I mean? <laughs> yeah. I think it's sort of, I honestly feel like it's a miniature cake. Like I, to me, like the consistency, like to me, a cookie is like cookie is a cookie. Like yeah. you're breaking it. You're that is a different, yeah. I don't know. It's a different, it's a different beast. So I, I, I mean, I, they're, I don't know. The name is in there. They're called black and white cookies. Know, but it but really, they really is a little like cake. I, I, yeah. I do love them. I think that <laughs> we should set some, we should set some ground lo- ground rules in that. I sure. think cookies in, in general, the ones I'm picturing, don't get frosted. Yes, you yeah. could have a sugar cookie. Well, sugar with, you could have it with frosting, but also a sugar cookie stands alone uh, without frosting. Yeah, That's I right. agree with that. If you took away I, the black I and white topping, it would be yeah, a, cake. a, a smushed mini cake. It, it, so yeah. I think if frosting, if frosting is existing, it's it's some entity other than a cookie in my mind. Or you frosted a cookie. Like, that's like yeah, frosting really someone's yayas, too, as well, <laughs> which is a saying my dad used to use. If what something frosts your yayas, it <laughs> upsets you. What? Yeah, and anyway, I don't know how we got there, Rebecca. I'm gonna probably let that be the last. I know, I love it. Wait, what does that mean? I know. What, what's a yeah, yeah? Well, it, I just remember wait, wait. it's it, it means like your balls, right? Like oh, it iced my balls. No, I didn't is know that. Actually, what you're saying. So the yayas are the balls, and then if somebody frosts them, they they're basically like uh, like annoying you. It it annoyed you. Like they're but like they're yes. like it's like a busting thing. It's like stop yes. like frosting my yaya. Yeah, yeah. So it's like somebody busts yeah. your balls, but your yayas get frosted if somebody has busted them. So it's almost like Got an infer imply situation. Okay. Okay. Rebecca, That's are you fun. gonna be okay if we leave this interview on frosted yayas? I would be I would be delighted. I would have it no other way. Okay. <laughs> I think that's what we're going to do, but, um, okay. But like a very, a good gluten-free chocolate chip cookie is the image we probably want to leave our listeners with. <laughs> I don't know. Frosted yeah. Yaga's is really the, the cherry okay. on top. Oh, all right. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much for the time for talking about your books and Hollywood and LA, which is a beautiful place to and live. A, a month from now we'll be stalking you so we can hear about your upcoming book that you can't talk about yeah, yet. That's right. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. This was honestly just so much fun no. to hang and chat. Thank you. Well, we will we'll hopefully be talking to you soon. And until then, give Los Angeles a smooch for us. <laughs> I will do. Right. A reluctant walk. Yeah, Thank you, guys. Bye. That'll do it for today's episode of Free Cookies. Please, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because... Algorithms! Because we need this to happen. We need the people to bump up the show higher in the feeds, which is where people get their things to listen. So we need that. So please go do that. Free cookies are bust. You can also email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com. You can follow at the Inky Phoenix. If you want book recommendations from my beautiful, lovely wife. That's me. You can also. Oh. Thank you, Kiona, for interjecting here at that the end of Free Cookies. Husky hacking up a lung. <laughs> we told her before that we were podcasting and to keep it down, but she was like, all you do is talk about that bitch, Ashi the asshole, but no, no, no. She's just trying to earn her place. I'm like, I'm going to be Kiona the Flumble. <laughs> So that's the new nickname for Kiona. Kiona the Flemball and Ashi the Asshole. <laughs> they have positive qualities, but those aren't as interesting to the listeners. Nobody wants to hear about your cute dog. They want to hear about your asshole but dog. But in Europe, she's known as Kiona de Flemball. <laughs> <laughs> more, more, not more importantly than Kiona de Flemball. Uh, <laughs> we are produced by Lindsay Collins of F&B Radio. But y'all, you are listening to this. Well, maybe you're listening to this and it's years old because we have survived forever because, as we said, free cookies forever. Timeless. May 18th, 2021 is the book release for Kate's new book. All the colors came out. It is a beautiful love letter to her father. It is, look, I know you might be like, she's biased. And you know what? I am. But I also know damn good books. And this is exquisite writing. 
It is emotional. It will make you reassess your relationships. I, I believe not only with your father, but with your family and anyone close to you. And I could not recommend it anymore. So you can order that book through Blue Bicycle Books, that is a local Charleston bookstore, or through the community, the, nope, village nope, the village bookstore. Bookseller. Bookseller, the village bookseller. Those are both in Charleston, South Carolina, where you will get signed copies. And you will also be supporting independent bookstores. So it is a win-win situation. Win-win-win. You win, the bookstore wins, the publisher wins, I win. And so it's a four win. We will send you a personalized five-second video of Fiona the Flamboyant. <laughs>